country to give to people. And I'll never forget, teenage boy finds uh, a negligee with a bottle of wine wrapped in it. What's this for? We'll talk about that later. You know, and, and what, what was fun about that is it got to the point to where they just weren't having any fun anymore. And it was a great lesson that we serve, even though it's not fun. We continue to do what God puts in front of us. Uh, again, it's just so, some fun memories. Uh, again, if, I, if you're here and I don't recognize you at all, please forgive me. But, uh, um, you know, playing golf uh, out at the golf course and um, just a lot of good memories from being here. So we appreciate uh, the chance to be able to come back and to share. Uh, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 9 if you have that in your scripture. But we're going to start with this, and that is that we all have a story to tell. And um, that story involves family. This is us now. Um, so just kind of get you that part of our story. So is this here what's back there? Because that's not always been the case. Uh, so um, when we were here, we just had three. And that was uh, back right with the beard. That's our oldest, Christopher. And that's his wife, Emma. They're two kids. A uh, little redheaded boy named Deacon. And um, we're still asking, what were you thinking Someday, if he becomes a deacon, he'll be deacon, deacon. Um, and then Maggie is our oldest grandchild. She was born on my birthday, so I don't have a birthday anymore. It's Maggie's birthday. On the uh, far left in the striped shirt, that's Nathaniel. Uh, our first day here, Nathaniel broke his arm. And he broke it because he was trying to ride the big wheel down the little tyke slide. That's Nathaniel. Uh, so that's his wife, Laura. And uh, there are three, so the two girls in front are theirs, and I'm holding Henry. Henry's now well, six months now, 25 pounds, 24, eight, no, he's a big boy. He just feels like he's 20-something pounds. Uh, big, solid boy. And then that's Rebecca. Uh, so Christopher is a senior pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he's been at this church for 10 years. Nathaniel, believe it or not, is a high school math teacher, and he's been teaching now for probably 10 years. Uh, Rebecca is a kindergarten teacher. So in our family, you had to be either a teacher or a preacher. And uh, so they, that's what they do. Uh, Anna's not in this picture. You didn't know Anna. So when we had left here and gone to the next place, we adopted Anna uh, from Ukraine. She's from the Donbass in the east where they're still doing all the fighting. And uh, this month, actually this week, uh, she'll be 24. We adopted her when she was four. And uh, she did not go with us on this trip. She's not a fan of the beach or outside or hot or sand or water or nature. So she, she got to stay home. <laughs> so this is our, part of our story. Part of our story involves this place. Part of our, I was a little disappointed to drive by and see that the Grange Hall is gone. I remember when we rented. Oh, you, that's okay. I don't hold it against you. The church bought it right before I came and uh, did some renovation on it. Used it a lot for youth stuff and things like that. Uh, we did get to use it one time. Uh, there were some people got picked up for underage drinking, students at the university. And I knew the police chief at the time. I said, I need some help renovating this. Send me some people. So they send me 15 college kids. <laughs> and they showed up the first day. And I said, well, here's what we're going to do. And they said, well, we usually get to go over to the next town and just sit around in the goodwill and do nothing. So welcome to the Baptist church. <laughs> so here's what we're doing. That night, of uh, the 1510 went and paid their fine. So they didn't have to come back. And then the next time we worked the next Saturday, five of them showed up, and I worked them. And then the next day, they all paid their fine. So we ran out of volunteers. Uh, they just did not want to work. But we appreciate the chance to be here, uh, our story. And, and you all have a story as well, uh, how you've been, what brought you to this place. 
what you've been a part of in your life. And that's going to come into play as we take a look at the scripture and then in a few minutes, a little bit as we look at disaster relief. Um, so let's take here, let's read the scripture. He said, it's in your bulletin if you want to follow it there. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. And it says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So let's start in verse 35. We're going to walk through these verses a little bit one at a time. So right from the very beginning, we see uh, what we're going to call that threefold work of Jesus. What he was doing, he was teaching, he was preaching, and he was healing. These three things is what he did. And what's so cool about this is that the message of the gospel is very simple. It's very straightforward. This is the gospel. It is about Jesus. He didn't have the church buildings we have. He didn't have all the extra stuff. And those things are fine as long as they don't get in the way of the message of the gospel about Jesus. I, I find it interesting, and I realize some are doing this, but I don't know if you've seen pastors, the churches now have, like, instead of these, the whole back of the sanctuary is a video wall and all this kind of smoke machine. I think that's pretty cool, uh, but it's not necessary. It really is okay, but it's not necessary. It is about the message of the gospel. And what is so cool also is he was preaching and sharing the exact same thing that we're sharing today about God's love and the kingdom of God. So he was going from place to place, teaching, preaching, healing. Now let's go back to verse 9. We're not going to read our chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but let's walk through what's going on. So what's happening is, and starting in chapter 9, he goes, we find that he heals a paralytic here. And so he heals them, he forgives them of their sins, but he's also getting some grief from the scribes that don't like what he's doing. And we'll get back to them in a minute. So verses 1 through 8, there's a healing going on. Matthew 9 through 12, where he calls Matthew, teaching on the kingdom of God, where he talks about that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Verses 14 through 17, he's teaching on fasting. Uh, he gets into the discussion about new wine and, and wineskins. Uh, verses 18 to 26, he heals a, heals a woman. He raises a girl to life. We find in verses 27 to 31, he healed the blind. Verse 32 to 34, driving out demons. And these were just some of the busy days and some of the things he was doing. All of these things, he was involved in ministry, very intent. Now, one of the things I know we struggle with sometimes is what is the time frame? How is this all happening? Because we'll read it and we think all this is happening in one day. And it really isn't. If you look at verse 9 for a second, I feel like these are transitions. So verse 9 says, as Jesus went on from there, the same thing we find in another verse, and we have these transitions. So most likely, <clears throat> these things happen at one encounter. As he went from there, these things happened on another day at another encounter. We get to the beginning, what we looked at in verse 35, continuing around to all the towns and villages. So this probably took weeks, if not months. They didn't have Uber. They didn't have their own car. Um, they would typically walk. And so he would go from place to place to place, towns and villages, sharing. Now, I know here, at least most of us, we don't walk too many places. We really don't. Uh, we've learned so much. Uh, we've traveled with disaster relief and other kinds of missions. Then most of the world walks. And when we, we were in, uh, I'll share this a little bit, our, one of the international mission projects we did with disaster relief was in Athens, Greece. 
and we were there in July, and uh, they walk. You know, we were talking about here's where we're staying, where we're the site, where we're working. Well, it's about a 25-minute walk that way. And our first thought, thought was, doesn't somebody have a car? And our missionary said, we walk here. And so we walked there and back, and everywhere we went, we walked. And that's what they were doing, too. So you got to put all this in perspective. He's, he's doing all these things day after day. He's ministering to people who are showing up. They're walking where they're going, all the things that they're doing. But in verse 35, as he was going from place to place, teaching, preaching, and sharing the good news. And then I want you to look in verse 36. All this stuff is happening. Do you, let's stop for a second. <clears throat> Do you think with all the things he, were do, he was doing, that people were demanding more? I mean, think about it for a second. If you saw someone healed, and you had a family member who needed healed, wouldn't you go get them? If you saw him, what all these things that he's doing, that tends to bring more people in, more people in. I want a part of this. My family needs this. My mom needs this. My other All these things taking place. And all these pressures were coming that where we would struggle from time to time. Just give me a break. But what he does in verse 36, <clears throat> when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. When he saw the crowds, when all the stuff he was doing, it's not like we would think, isn't that enough? Do I have to continue to? And we would think those kinds of things. When is enough enough? And he sees the great need and simply feels compassion. And that kind of compassion is what drives us to act. When we look at people who come, people who have a need, I don't know all the ministers of the church here, but I know churches that, that we see around the state, a lot are involved in things like um, handing out food, either at holidays or on a regular basis, paying electric bills, do all the kinds of things that we do to have compassion and help people. But we all get to the point in time, from time to time, saying, when is enough enough? Why don't you just get a job? We had a family one time that they had the opportunity for other services they weren't using. So we had someone sit down with them and say, hey, you can be involved in all these services to meet your needs. And she got offended that the church wasn't doing it, that we were directing her that you can, these resources are here. She got so mad she left the church because we wouldn't just give it to her. I don't know about you, but we've been in a point in time from time to time we think, when is enough enough? But all those people have a story, just like you do. You have a story that brings you here today. And even in the face of these demands, Jesus had compassion. The, the word compassion here can mean a couple of different things. The general text that they'll use in, in the Gospels is just to feel a deep sympathy for someone. A deep sim sympathy for someone. There's another place that it's used that, that Paul uses in a number of places that really means then to... <laughs> To have the bowels yearn. Because in the Old Testament, that seat of the emotion is here. And so just, it bothers you so much that you just feel it. And, and I, I need to do something. And, and, and that's the thing about what we call compassion ministries, is that we all pray, we all give. But so much of the time, we want to do it. What can I do to help somebody? And we see this, and that's that type of compassion that he's having, just this to yearn for people. What can I do to, to help them? What can I do to step into their lives to help them for a short period of time? And that's what was happening here. Verse 30, the second part of verse 36 really becomes the reason for the compassion. 
the reason for the compassion where he says they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were just wandering. This becomes a criticism like we read, he read in the Old Testament about the leaders at the time. The leaders at the time were, were primarily interested in following the covenant that was already given to them, not realizing in, in detail that they should, that this is the new covenant. I mean, all the way back in Jeremiah 31, he talks about the new covenant that's coming in Christ. Well, it's here. But they struggled to make transitions. So I, I'm not going to ask. Uh, no, I'm going to. How many of you struggle in church change? And they struggle with change from time to time. And it, yeah, there yeah, you go. See, yeah, we'll be honest. We, we struggle with change. And, and it's because we, we like it the way it is. We like to sit where we sit. And, and we like things the way they are. And, and, and I'm trying to, I've been trying to picture kind of what the place looked like when we were here. I know there was a big wall across the back that had kind of glass, glass in it. And then the, out there was a little different. Still have the baptistry. Still the splash zone. Yeah. I, I love that baptistry, by the way. I really do. I would use that over any of the other ones you get into all day long because I don't have to change clothes. Uh, love that one. But I remember baptizing a couple of guys in that one. Beefy boys. And it really was a splash zone right here. It was awesome. Uh, but yeah, remember things, you know, the change is okay. You do what you've got to do. And I just want to encourage you that when we look at life and look about change, that things are going to change. That's, that's the constant. Things change. What never changes is God's love for us. Never changes. You realize that he's not going to love you any more tomorrow than he already loves you today. He's going to love you the same. Whether you're sin, whether you're not today, He's going to love you the same. And what's happening here, we have these religious leaders, they're really struggling with, and they're staying with, it's about the rules, it's not about the relationship. Not about you, but sometimes it's easier to have the rules. Just tell me what I need to do, and I'm good. Give me a checklist. Mark on my checklist, I'm good. The relationship is different. It's this connection that we have. It's beyond the list, and they saw the people not getting what they need, and the response is in verses 37 and 38. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. I don't know about you. Has everybody, anybody been voluntold to be in a church position? Yeah, we've been voluntold. Um, you think you're volunteering, but you're more being told. Uh, Nathaniel, our son, he's very involved in church, um, but the church they're at right now, um, they invited him to an interest meeting for a, is it officially a festival today? What fall. Their fall festival. They're expecting 3,000 people at their fall festival this afternoon. And so they invited him to this meeting of it, and they found out it wasn't just a meeting. It was a meeting of the directors for it, of which they hand him a three-ring binder about someone to make sure all the games are organized and just said, what do you think? We're standing in the room. He said, sure, why not? That's, he was kind of voluntold. But he would have volunteered anyway. In the life of the church, there are things that we do, and we look at this. We have to understand more and more and more. It feels like there are less people out there sharing the love of Christ than there used to be. It might feel that way, but I need you to know, as we travel all over the state and all over the country, there actually are more people who are sold out to Jesus and telling people about the gospel than we've ever seen before. Churches that are willing to make changes to do what needs to be done for the sake of the gospel 
I'm going to show you some pictures, just an example of this in Poland with Ukrainian refugees. So when we look at this, at the very end, he talks about that we need to pray. So when we're looking for volunteers to work in the life of the church, I think this is more than that. I don't think it's just about, you know, filling all the positions in the church. It's about who's going to go and tell. And here becomes more of that filling station mentality. You come here, you get filled, you spend time together as a church family. But in so many ways, the real ministry is out there. When you leave this building, the real work starts. Being able to share, being able to be that person that God wants us to be. When we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, how do we see people? Um, I know right now some people don't see me very well when I drive. And I'll tell you why. Earlier this year, I made a decision. We are at my son's church, and he was preaching. I thought, you know what? We've all preached about obeying the laws of the land. We use something like the speed limit as an example. I decided I'm going to follow the speed limit pretty close, much more closely than I ever have before. So if it's 70, to me, that means 80. It's always been that way. I'm not going to do that anymore. So like on the way out here today, I set the cruise, and you'd think I was the devil himself on the freeway. Everybody's passing me, giving me that look and waving at me not nicely and just all that kind of stuff that goes on. And it's like, but dude, I'm going the speed limit. I don't know their story. Maybe they have to go somewhere. We see things. And, and so much of the time, what this reminds me of is that we, I judge you on what you say and do. I judge myself on what I meant to say and do. That's usually how we live. So we see somebody turning like this around the corner. We're thinking, Grandma, get a license, right? Oh, come on. I am not the only one that has those thoughts. Maybe they're going to church and have a crock pot full of beans on the floor they don't want to spill, right? How many times have we done that? We don't want to spill the crock pot on the floor. We all have a reason, and we justify ourselves when we see other people, what they're doing, and they must be wrong. Compassion says, regardless of what that is going on, we have got to be about the gospel. We've got to be about, there is a need there that we need to see. And there's something there that we need to do. We all have a story to tell. As we look in compassion ministry, and we're going to talk just a little bit this morning about disaster relief and what we do. It is an, a form of compassion ministry, but not the only form of compassion ministry. What you guys do in the life of the church here is what you need to do. There are folks, if they want to be involved in this type of service as well, um, it is a great opportunity to do. And that's what I like about it. I, I've always been a doing kind of person. What can we do to help people? What can we do to step into their lives? Uh, so let me share just a little bit about our disaster relief and um, some things you may know, some things you may not know. And uh, so the very first one is we started into disaster relief international deployments right when the war started in Ukraine. And because Ohio Disaster Relief, along with Louisiana Disaster we have a partnership and we cover disaster response and requests from the International Mission Board for all of Western Europe. Big piece of ground that we cover. So when the war started, all the refugees are flowing into Hungary and Poland and other countries. We had Poland. And so we were asked to go, and we were on the initial assessment team. What are we going to do? And so we decided on three locations, uh, Warsaw Helm, which is down on the Ukrainian border, and then Gdansk, which is going to be our site into the north. And we rotated disasterly people in and out of those three sites 
uh, for months. How do we help churches who are ministering to refugees do it even better? Because they were overwhelmed. So 100 people knock at the door this afternoon, mostly women and children. We need somewhere to live. You're going to turn them away? Well, there's some who would. But these churches said, sure, come on in. Well, if that happens, what do you got to do? They have to eat. They got to sleep somewhere. Their kids, usually medical needs, they got a shower, they've got laundry. I mean, all those things come into play. And so we were able to send teams over to help churches do this and to be able to care for missionaries. The picture on the right is one of my favorite pictures ever. This is a church in Helm. It's right on the Ukrainian border. Uh, this is a gentleman uh, who is there. But behind him, it's maybe kind of hard to see, those are the church pews. Because most churches, the only the big enough place for people to sleep is the sanctuary. This church had to make a decision. What's more important, the people or the pews? You think y'all got traditions? This church is over 200 years old. These pews are older than most of us. And they said, you know what? The people are most important. They stacked all those pews up and they put bedding down. They just grabbed whatever they could find anywhere. Put them on, got blankets, got sheets. And that's where they slept. Some mom and two kids on one mattress because they didn't have space. Um, and that's what they did. And so they had the process through here to be able to share the gospel. Um, they did not really advertise this. But if you are uh, a family man, family um, father, the family with three or more kids, you're allowed to leave Ukraine because you had so many kids. So some men were able to leave, uh, but not all. So we worked in Poland, still have that connection. Uh, four of our state conventions, Ohio, Louisiana, Kentucky, and Mississippi went together, bought this church, uh, not this church, but the church in Gdansk that we did, a, uh, a nine-passenger van, because that's the biggest you can get in Poland without having a CDL. And they make weekly, weekly trips into Ukraine taking supplies and blankets, and they take generators to churches. So they'll fire up the generators and have church on Sunday. So everybody comes, they charge their cell phones, they ch charge their cell packs, all those kinds of things that are taking place. And they're driving all the way into the east where the war is going on, taking all kinds of supplies. And so you're part of that. We also, this year, uh, on the far left is Budapest, Hungary. Uh, they're dealing with refugees as well, people living in the building but no kitchen. They said, can you send some people to build us a kitchen? So these guys uh, were trades. One of them is a licensed electrician. Uh, the rest of us pretend to be licensed electricians. And they go do their thing because the picture in the middle is Athens, Greece. Uh, we were there this year in July. Uh, we were asked to go help a missionary there um, because they want to set up a community center for, to deal with human trafficking because in Greece, prostitution is legal, um, as well as um, refugees out of Africa and some other places. So we thought it was going to be just a general kind of project. Well, we get there, and the IMB missionary says, we need all new lights, all new switches, all new... All. Does anybody know anything about electric? <laughs> I looked at the three guys next to me, and they said, we know how to turn on a light switch. <laughs> so I became an electrician for the week, because I, I know how to do that stuff, even though I'm not licensed. So we spent the whole time we were there wiring, doing all new lights, and, but that's what they needed. And God knew that before we got there. So we're a part of that. The next one is the most recent international project that you'll see. Uh, this is, we were on the island of Guam um, in August. So everybody's heard of FEMA? FEMA has all the money and no people. We have all the people and no money. So when they get into a big project, FEMA calls us. 
and they say, can you go take care of this for us? So FEMA uh, called Southern Baptist Disaster Relief, not just Ohio, but several states. And so we've been rotating teams in and out of the island of Guam, uh, which is harder to get to than I had anticipated. Um, so we spent uh, our time rotating in and out every two weeks. Uh, our mission was to try to rebuild homes, which what they're calling emergency home repair, so people can move home. The picture on the top right is somebody's house. We nicknamed it the chicken coop. That's somebody, it's a two-room house. It is uh, 24 feet long by 12 feet wide. That's their house. Mom, dad, two kids living at home. That's all that was left after the hurricane hit it. Uh, they have a new metal roof that the Army Corps of Engineers put on. Um, so we set out to what can we do? How do we do this? So we laid out a list. Um, there were some donated supplies that came from another uh, typhoon. And FEMA said we could spend $10,000 max on each house. So I made sure we spent $9,995 of your tax money uh, on these homes. This particular home you see on the bottom right, that's what it looked like when we were done. On the left is what we would call like a carport roof with a metal roof. That's their outdoor kitchen. That's their only kitchen. It's outside. Have no hot water. It's just water, city water. They don't have a hot water tank. They don't have any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and then back right that you can't see from here is the bathroom. It's about from here to that back wall. And we, it looked like when we got there a picture out of Jurassic Park. It was a piece of concrete with the bottom half of a toilet. That's all that was there. And so rebuilt the whole thing There's, with a shower and with a commode. And so that's their bathroom. It is that far out back. That's how they live. This particular folks, that's how they live. The middle picture is the lady and her family who lived there. We were exchanging keys. Uh, she gave me a key to the front door that used to be there that nobody knows where it's at now. And we gave her the key to the new door that we had a chance to put in. So that was the transition there. Uh, top left, we were working for uh, one of our pastors there. Um, we asked FEMA, let us come down a week early to get organized. FEMA says, we got it, don't worry about it. So when the federal government says, we got it, don't worry about it, we worried. We got there day one, and nothing was what it was supposed to be. We were supposed to have rental cars, didn't get those for four days. Supposed to have a place to stay. They said we didn't have it until tomorrow. Uh, they were supposed to give us jobs to work on. It took them 10 days to give us the first house to go look at. So in the middle, we said, okay, what are we going to do? We're not going to sit here. We went with our, uh, the Hawaii Pacific uh, director. Uh, he was there. He said, let's go talk to some pastors I know. And who do you have in your church affected by the storm that came through? Let's help them. He said, okay. And we told FEMA, here's what we're going to do. They said, okay. So they paid all of our expenses to be there for us to work on churches and pastors' homes and church members' homes. And so that picture is one pastor had a mango tree collapse. Um, that they have a, typically a, a block wall as their fence around properties and, and kind of messed that up. So we laid block. Had anybody on the team laid block before? Eh, kind of, sort of. Yeah, as long as it's sort of straight as the rest, it's going to be good. You, know, you do what you have to do, right, when you get there. Bottom left, I got to tell you about Millie. Um, and we're just on international yet. I'm not even looking at the time. Um, I'm already here. Um, Millie, we got a call from the pastor. Can you go to Millie's house? So they had a similar size house. And out back was a metal roof that they had. It was salvaged from an old warehouse. And under that was Millie's bedroom. And then to the left of that was the outdoor kitchen. And then the left of this was a pop-up tent where they had a TV, and that was their living room, family room. Her bedroom's gone. 
And uh, this particular storm was on May 24th. Uh, the storm was 140 miles an hour and set over top of Guam for 20 hours doing this. 140 miles an hour for 20 hours, moving five miles an hour, just tearing up houses like this. So, okay, we're going to do it. So I called Millie, said I need to come to make an assessment of your property. We got there at 8.30 that morning and nobody answered the door. Found out from her dad who walked around the house that she had just gotten home at 7 o'clock with her daughter because they were in the emergency room all night. Uh, got her up, though, and we made the assessment and was able to get FEMA to approve the project, and the team after us built her bedroom. Now, the cool stuff that won't show up in the FEMA paperwork is that when we were there, uh, the assessment team uh, with me, I had two chaplains with me, another state director, and three FEMA people had to be there. So our chaplain just sits down and just talks with her. What's going on? Why were you in the ER? And you're just having the conversation. Uh, before we left, we give everybody a Bible if they'll accept it, and so that's where we left Millie. When our, our second Ohio team shows up, our chaplain of that team was, is Sarah Jo. Sarah Jo had a chance to sit down with her, and as they were finishing, Millie prays to accept Jesus. And that's significant for a number of reasons. But it's also significant because as she prays to accept Christ, they finish the project, and the team's leaving. She's also leaving to go to City Hall to get a copy of the death certificate of her husband who passed away three weeks earlier. Her husband died three weeks earlier. A typhoon takes away most of their house. Their daughter's in the emergency room. And she said, I just sat there thinking, what am I going to do? And you guys showed up. And Teller says, it's not an accident. It's not us per se. But God sent you what you needed when you needed it. She said, how much is this going to cost? This is not going to cost you anything. All this is going to be paid for. And she said, people just don't know what to say. They'll say, why are you here? Or why are you doing this? We'll say, we're glad you asked that question. Let me tell you why we're here. Because of Christ, this is why we're here. And we get a chance to share. Every home we serve, we give a Bible. We give a track. Everybody on the team signs the Bible in the front and leaves that with them. We've been giving the, the typical stuff churches give out. You know, the cheaper Bibles can't, can't afford the more expensive ones. We're actually working on a deal with Crossway Publishers. Uh, for a, a nice Bible that has the Disaster Relief logo embossed on the front, uh, information inside about how to receive Christ and all those kinds of things. And uh, if we, several state conventions are going together, and if we go together and order 1,500 or more, they only cost $8 a piece. But they're $30 in the bookstore. And so I've ordered 800 of those. If I can sell 300 for $20 a piece, the other 500 are free. Um, so God will provide you the way. Everybody gets a Bible. So that's international. That's what we've been doing. Uh, we go wherever we're requested for the most part. Uh, going on international disaster response is going to cost you something, unfortunately. Uh, like you would go on a church mission trip. Uh, we can't afford to pay everyone's uh, cost. Of now, when we go with FEMA, FEMA pays all the bills. They pay for airfare, lodging, food, travel. I mean, they pay for all of it. Uh, but that's not a normal kind of a thing. So right now, we're gearing up to send teams to Maui. Uh, they're getting ready to do a recovery down there now. That They have cleared uh, search and rescue. They've cleared some of the other issues that have to be cleared. So uh, disaster across the country, we're getting ready to send teams. That's something that will cost individuals a little bit. Um, we pay as much of it as we can as a disaster organization. And so we've got some of those projects coming up. Uh, if it comes to mind this week, we have a uh, chainsaw crew, which is the next picture, on the road today on their way to Perry, Florida. Um, a couple of weeks ago, they had a storm, 
probably heard about that. Uh, it, it hit Augusta, Georgia as well. Um, there's a 90 mile stretch outside of Perry, Florida, where a tornado just demolished pine trees and a bunch of old live oaks. And all those have to be cut up and moved out of the way. So uh, we're joining Florida Disaster Relief along with some others. And so our team is in route right now. But these pictures are from other ones. Uh, these are all from Ohio incidents. The one on the left used to be somebody's RV. Now it's two RVs from that big tree. Uh, the one on the right is from Zanesville. Y'all had a storm uh, some time ago. The emergency manager called from Muskingum County. He said, we have a house that was destroyed by a tree. So tell me about the tree. The tree was on the National Registry for the oldest, largest sugar maple tree in all of Muskingum County. They estimated it weighed 25 tons. Uh, the bottom of the tree measured across around six and a half feet. It was a beast and just fell right on this house in Zanesville and destroyed it. And so my thought was, if we go out, can I destroy a house any more than it's already been destroyed? The answer is yes. We did, but our, our mission was to go and to how much of this house can we get out? We had hired a crane, I mean, big crane, and the night before they called and said, the crane's down, we can't do it, so y'all are on your own. So I called somebody else, a place called Big Rents. Found them online, 40 miles from here. And we rented a big, um, this, is called, this is a telehandler, we would call it like a big forklift sky track. It's supposed to lift 6,000 pounds. One section of the tree, six feet long, this big around, we wrap it on a logging chain, hook it to the SkyTrack, and I go to lift it when they cut it. It snaps the logging chain in half. It's that heavy. This, this wood is what they make bowling alleys out of. It's as hard as oak, if not harder. I called every sawmill in this area, and nobody would call me back that they wanted this tree. It was a beast. So our mission was to get as much of it off as we can so the homeowner can get stuff out, because of course he didn't have homeowner's insurance so we went out and we worked on this house. So there is um, the homeowner and his girlfriend. Uh, so, hey, um, Larry Randolph was one of our chaplains and he was with us. So Larry goes to witness and just share, here's what we're doing, da, 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 da. And the guy says, <laughs> Larry says, is there any reason you wouldn't want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And the guy says, I'm a Nazarene, I don't need that. Okay. I said, he goes to the Nazarene church. He doesn't need that. So we let it go. So we're working, we're working. And the lady who lives right next door, so you see the orange telehandler behind that is a home. The lady gets home, and she comes up to Larry and says, what are you guys doing? I'm glad you asked that question. Larry proceeds to lead her to Jesus. And she prays to get saved right there at the driveway. Now, originally, it's about a tree, right? The heart of everything we do is about the gospel. Everything. All of this is a way to earn the right to be heard. We never charge for what we do. We never want your insurance information. We never ask for anything from anyone. We are supported primarily through the cooperative program, which you guys are a part of. The Ray Roberts State Missions Offering, we get part of that. We also get funding uh, from some place called Home Depot. Y'all ever shop at Home Depot? You can support disaster relief, and it doesn't cost you a dime. So whatever card you use to buy stuff at Home Depot, if you go to our website, scbo.org slash dr, he can put the bulletin for you or something. You go there, there's a flyer. You call Justin, he is our national account representative. Register your card, 
And everything you buy with that card automatically gets disastrously 5% at the end of the year. And if you sign up as a church on that, that program, you also get 20% off paint and other kinds of things the church gets credit for. Last year, Southern Baptist Card spent $5.2 million at Home Depot. We got a check for $268,000, not Ohio, but in the national fund. And why that's important is because we're Region 2. I, I am the national representative for Region 2 for disaster relief, and Region 2 is West Virginia to North Dakota. <laughs> I didn't make up the lines. So all those disaster relief guys I, I work with and talk to and encourage, um, so we're considered poor in disaster relief world. So we get to apply, like the team that's in the field right now, when they get back, every receipt they give me, I will turn around and process it, turn it into the national fund, and we'll get reimbursed for every dollar we spent on that deployment that we have receipts for, all coming out of the Home Depot fund. I think that's an easy way, folks, to support disaster. Lowe's does the same thing. He said their process is so much harder. Um, Home Depot is just direct. All those things come into play. We have churches that give directly to disaster relief, individuals who give directly to disaster relief. Um, so that's how we're funded. People ask, how do you pay for it if you don't charge people anything? It's that way. God always provides when we need it. The next one, I think, should be flood recovery. Uh, very, very busy this year. A lot of flooding, a lot of storms. The, uh, yeah. So this one, uh, top right, is actually uh, last year the hurricane in Florida. We were sent to Naples, Florida. Um, and Naples and Bonita Springs, just south of Fort Myers, was our area where we worked. I'm going to show you a video from one of the houses we worked out. We'll get there in just a minute. The second picture, the bigger one in the middle, that's actually from Massachusetts, Leominster, Massachusetts, three weeks ago. We had a team out there. They got flooded before the hurricane came in. They got flooded July 13th. Are we doing flood recovery all the way up to the day the hurricane passed through? And they didn't get any damage from the hurricane. Weird. So that's that. Uh, bottom left, I need to tell you about this one. This was a flooding in southeast Kentucky. I think it was last fall, about a year ago. Uh, we were sent to Cary, Kentucky. You probably never heard of it unless you've been there. Uh, it's just outside of Hazard. So if you've ever been to Gatlinburg and you're riding this road, two-lane road, mountain on this side, cute little stream over here. Got, got the picture? This part of Kentucky, that cute little stream became 19 feet of water overnight. And it just wiped everybody out who had all those trailers and small homes all in this area. Uh, it affects six counties. And so we got a call to go down and help, so we were at Cary. So in Cary, there's this man. He is 72, retired from the coal mine as a heavy equipment operator. For some reason, he wakes up at 2 o'clock in the morning and sees the flood coming. He decides, i got to do something. We're in trouble. Gets his wife up, his daughter, granddaughter, said, go wake up the neighbors. They woke up, six or seven of the neighbors. They got in his pickup truck. He grabbed the logging chain, threw it in his pickup truck, and he drove down about a half a mile to the bridge, and he chains his truck to the bridge as the flood's coming. All night long, they're riding in his truck, and it's doing this in the flood all night long. They're calling people, telling them goodbye. Uh, we're not going to make it through the night. They hear people screaming outside all night long. Uh, one guy was caught up in a tree, and a Y of a tree got his leg. Uh, another one over here, a lady was stuck on top of a utility pole. All night long, this is going on. They survive. Seven of their immediate neighbors did not. They drowned. 
The story takes a weird turn in that one of our chaplains had a chance to talk to this man two days later. Ran into him, said, tell me your story. So he shares the story. And she shares the gospel. She says, is there any reason why you would not want to accept Jesus, your Lord and Savior? And he says this, I am just not ready yet. She's thinking, how much closer can you get? But she doesn't say that. She says, well, okay. See, the thing about when you share the gospel, always leave the door open for the next person. If you go, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You just messed it up. They said, okay. Two days later, the same chaplain runs into, runs into the guy who was stuck in the tree. Tell me your story. Shares the gospel. Is there any reason why you would not accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he says, I'm just not ready. Just because you share the gospel doesn't mean somebody's going to accept Christ. They have a story too. You don't know what part of their story brought them to that day. You don't know what story is going to be tomorrow and after we leave. We just don't know. But everything we do is to earn the right to be heard. And we're not pushy. We're not obnoxious. If we ask someone, hey, can we pray with you? If they say no, we say okay. We work with emergency managers. Um, it's their responsibility for every county. And so uh, I'm part of the Emergency Managers Association now, so I'm getting to know those individuals. Um, got a chance to speak out at um, Salt Fork when their annual meeting this last December. And one of the emergency <laughs> managers gets up and she says that, she says, we love Southern Baptist disaster relief. We know they're faith-based. We know they share their faith. But they do such good work, we're willing to overlook that. I'm gonna, hey, write that down for me because I'm going to use that. You know, they know we're faith-based. We know it's about Jesus. They know that. These are folks in the, the government and emergency management, but they'll overlook it because we do such good work. And that's our goal. We want to do good work. We want folks that we deal with from the federal government, the state and local, all those people we deal with to know, you know, we're not fly-by-night. We do good work. Um, so this is some of the flood recovery. We've been involved a lot. Uh, there's a video here. It, there's maybe sound attached. If so, you can kill it. Just start that video. If you can, and I'll explain this. This is, is it attached? If not, then we'll skip it. Okay, if you click on the picture, you should see up on the bottom left, you should be able to, or hit the space bar. Anyway, this is a house in Benita Springs <clears throat> when they got the hurricane. She lives, yeah, go ahead and kill that channel for sound. So this little old lady, the storm comes, she gets six feet of water in this house. And she bobs around in the water all night. So she climbs up on a cabinet in the garage. The military rescues her the next day, and she's a hoarder too, by the way. Uh, the military rescues her the next day. They close her front door and lock it, and nobody goes back for 27 days when they give us the work order. One of the guys on that team, he said, his, this is his very first mud out. He says, I really hope we can do a real mud out. I got this work order. I said, you're going to this house. It took us... Not us, not me. I was there. I was logistics. That's the garage, two-car garage full of stuff that she hoarded. Um, one whole team, one whole day to take out personal property. So imagine your house, first floor where your kitchen is, all that under six feet of water, which means all that's now trash. All your furniture, all your flooring, all of your appliances, your furnace, your hot water tank. I mean, everything's trash. Your kitchen cabinets, everything's done now. It's got to go. Drywall's got to be peeled off. The insulation's got to come out. I mean, all that is something that if this is classified a flood, your homeowner's insurance does not cover. 
unless you have specifically flood insurance policy. In Florida, in this area, flood insurance costs about $600 a month. If, so most people don't have it. Uh, that's what it looked like at the la very last day. Uh, one whole day to take personal property out, one whole day to do the demo, another half day to finish demo. We will power wash it then and spray it with something called Shockwave. Uh, it's something that most people don't have because it costs $100 a gallon to buy it. And we get it free. And we'll spray so it doesn't mold. And once it dries, they're ready to rebuild. This is that lady's house. Unfortunately, the week we were there in her house, uh, the family went and got guardianship and she moved into a nursing home. So she'll never be back at the house again. Whether the family keeps it or not, I don't know the status of that at the moment. But I showed that video just to give people, now they're not all like that, but lately a lot of more of them have been like that. Um, a couple weeks ago we were in Lorain, Ohio. There was a storm August 24th, 25th. Most people don't realize this, but there were 12 tornadoes went through northern Ohio that night. 12. And they brought mostly flooding. The houses in Lorraine got about four to five feet of water in their basements. So the furnace is now trashed. Their hot water is trashed. All the stuff that you store in your basement you might want someday is now gone. All your Christmas decorations, all that stuff. Because a lot of that basement flooding is black water, which is mixed with mold. Or mixed with sewage. I'm sorry. All that's trash now. Uh, so we spent some time up there trying to help folks finish. Um, so flood recovery we do a lot of. I'm actually in discussions with Dr. White at Cedarville University about having a Cedarville SBDR flood recovery unit. And uh, he likes the idea, and so we're trying to work more with universities, training college students to be involved in disaster relief. We even have the opportunity that uh, high school students uh, can actually train with their parent or grandparent, but they have to deploy with their parent or grandparent. Don't send me your teenagers, that's not this. Youth group is send relief, this is different. Uh, the next one is our food service. Um, that trailer on the left, we just bought a year ago. This is our uh, quick response feeding unit. This trailer, uh, whole thing from bumper to the ball is 30 feet long. This is a commercial kitchen on wheels. It's not like a food truck. It's a commercial stainless steel kitchen on wheels. We can cook, I don't know, eight, 900 hot meals a day out of this thing. And uh, believe it or not, so you guys do give to the cooperative program, right? Y'all help pay for this. And you didn't even know it. Isn't that cool? That's why we're part of the cooperative program. Now, where some of this funding came from, anybody know who Kevin Ezell is? Kevin Ezell is who? President of North American Mission Board. So Kevin's at an event that I'm at, and we have our DR table set up, and Kevin walks up, and I say, hey, Kevin. He said, hey, and we're talking. I said, yeah, we want to get a feeding unit. We're trying to raise money. He says, how much do you? And I haven't looked at him yet. We're just talking. Yeah, well, he says, how much do you? I said, I don't know. He said, here, here's my cell phone. <laughs> Big mistake. So he sends me his cell phone number. I gave him three days to rest. I text him and said, Kevin, you said to text you about. He said, fine. He sends a message to somebody named uh, Josh Benton. Josh is a vice president for Send Relief Domestic. And he says, Kevin came to see me. He wants me to call you. So Josh calls and said, I was talking to Kevin. He said, I'm supposed to give you $40,000. Would that be okay? Well, let me think. Yeah. At the time, this unit only cost $59,000. So we had the other 19. Now this same unit is almost $80,000 with a rise in cost of supplies and all that kind of stuff. So we have this unit. It's still uh, figuring out how it's going to work. We've still had some repairs, stuff that we have to do. Uh, you hear about the flooding in Vermont uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, this feeding unit was in Barrie, Vermont. It stayed there for several weeks while they did uh, mass feeding to community members as well as volunteers up there working. Um, great piece of equipment. We're very excited to have it. 
Um, so it's, it's working well. The next one um, just is our chaplain corps. Um, Tim was asking about our chaplains. The one on the far right, that's Larry uh, witnessing to the guy who's sitting in his car. Uh, the guy in the blue jacket is the Nazarene pastor. So that was an interesting conversation. How do you become a chaplain in disaster relief? One, you have to be in disaster relief to start with. So you train, go through the train like everybody else does. What that looks like to get your ID and your credentials, that process is all online. There's a disaster relief, introduction to disaster relief. You watch online, you take an online quiz. It is not that hard. I made it that way. If you watch the video, you can pass the test. It's not that hard. Uh, but the credentials comes with a background check. There's some paperwork that you do. Uh, we train in three circles as our evangelism strategy, even though we all have different things. I've got some of my guys who love the Evangel Cubes, and they use those religiously. Others, I'm a Romans Road person, um, but we use uh, three circles as a training that we're doing right now. Uh, from in disaster relief, then you can apply to be considered for chaplaincy. Um, you have to, there's an application that you have to fill out, a recommendation from your pastor or director of missions that recommend you to do it. But here's the question that's come up related to our chaplains. I'm just going to address it straight out. And that is, I know last summer, or this past summer in the convention, uh, there was a vote made by the convention that in the Southern Baptist Convention, we would not ordain women as pastors in the church. We have women who serve as chaplains in disaster relief. That still supports our convention's position not ordaining, ordaining women as pastors because our chaplains are not pastors. They don't serve in the local church. They are not ordained. They don't do any of those kinds of things. I've been a disaster relief chaplain for 13 years. I've been a Southern Baptist pastor for 37 years. That's not the same job. And so as we look at that role, vocational chaplains, if they're required to be ordained, that's not what we do. Our North American Mission Board trustees in 2004 voted that the, the commissioning organization for North American Mission Board would not ordain any women as chaplains or endorse any women as chaplains if they're ordained. So, for example, we, uh, our North American Mission Board endorses military chaplains, but only the men because they're ordained to serve as a chaplain in the military. The women chaplains are ordained as well, but they don't endorse them as a North American Mission Board. So people ask me about that all the time. It's something that's come up recently. And so we've looked at that. And, and based on those things and some other things, pastors and chaplains are not the same things. In disaster relief, other organizations that might be, but volunteer disaster relief chaplains with Southern Baptists are not ordained. They're not pastors. They don't come under the authority of their local church. Men and women can serve as chaplains in disaster relief. We are trained as chaplains the same way that military and police and fire are trained. Uh, we train in things, if you have any kind of background in that, we train in incident uh, operational stress first, uh, first aid. We train in um, critical incident stress management. All those kinds of courses that chaplains are trained on police and fire, we train our chaplains to do. And so I answer that. So if you have questions, I'm glad to answer those afterwards. But because of all those things involved, we have every state convention that has disaster relief have women chaplains. Every single one of us. Uh, and there are other reasons. There are opportunities that we've had with our women chaplains that we never would have gotten as male chaplains. We've had occasions where two of our men chaplains will knock on a door because we have a work order for this house, and the lady inside won't open the door because two guys are standing on our front porch. So we have a man and a woman, or two women chaplains go, they'll open the door. We have a different sense of, of ministry with our chaplains. We have two other trainings for this year. Uh, one is supposed to be here on October the 28th. I will tell you, we need more people to sign up because right now there's not enough to keep the training. But I want to do it. 
I want to be able to have it out here, and it's not just from this church. Anywhere, actually anywhere in the state, uh, one person signed up is from where we're at. They're going to drive out here for training for that day. Training is one morning, but you have to do your online work first. You've got to do the online stuff, get your credentials, get that done first, and then show up to do the training. Training is like 8.30 to 1.30, um, and training in whatever specialty you signed up for. And I will find something for the chainsaw crew to cut up. Um, <laughs> preferably something outside. Um, we'll kind of go from there. Um, I mean, in, in essence, that's what we do. That's who disaster is. Those are some of the things that we do. Go back again to everybody has a story. Everybody we come in contact with in disaster response has a story. We see it as an opportunity that God plants us in their lives for a very short period of time, and then we're gone. We always tie people to the local church, always. If there is something here and we're based out of here and we're out in the community doing chainsaw work, we'll tell folks, hey, we're here with Friendship Baptist Church and we're Southern Baptist Disaster Relief. Here's information about that church. Always connecting people to the local church because we're there and we're gone. So you can think about it. You can pray about it. I know the church has been involved in some things with Disaster Relief before. And I guess part of my question for this morning is, kind of, what's your story? You might think uh, that you're here today by accident, and based on what we believe about God, that's not true. You're here today for a reason. And your story brings you to this place on this day at this time. And it could be it's time for you to acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You know, what's it going to take? I believe as we look at Scripture that God draws us to himself. The Spirit does it, draws us to himself. And you have to make a choice at some point in time, either ignore that or to embrace what God's trying to do. And you might be there. This morning might be the day to say, you know, I, I just need to do this. I need to trust God. I need to follow him. I need to, how many times, guys, all those who have served as pastors, people will come and they'll say, you know, I've tried everything else. I might as well try God. That's not quite the right mentality, but it's a right step. To say, I need, what I'm doing is not working. We know the scripture teaches us what we do never works. It's what God does. It changes us, gives us a new nature, makes us new creatures. I want to encourage you today, if you're in that position, maybe today's your day. Today's to say, I, I need to trust Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Today, I need to give in and trust him. Let's pray together. Our Father God, as we come before you this day, God, on this day has already been ordained and set in motion. You knew who was going to be here. You knew what was going to take place. So God, I thank you that you brought us together here together again. I pray, God, for anyone today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. They, they keep trying lots of other things. They keep trying to do the right thing. They keep trying to do the church thing. But God, until we trust you, until we acknowledge that you are the only thing, the rest of that won't matter. And I pray today that you would change lives. That you would make us new in you. That our story now will have a different ending. To love you, to praise you. We spend the rest of our lives learning what does that mean. But it starts at a moment. 
Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who is struggling, anyone who might be watching or listening at another time, that if this is that day, God, I pray that they would pray to you right now and just call out to you, say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've tried it on my own for too long. God, save me today. God, forgive me today. God, I trust you as my Lord and Savior to worship you and to serve you and to walk with you all the days of my life. God, we pray that that's happened today with some. That today the story takes a new chapter. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.